Hello and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I'd like to draw your attention to an interview coming soon on Patreon.com. In the new series called Is the Mic Working? I chat with Zoe Bayers, the recently appointed leader of the BBC Philharmonic, about her experiences leading orchestras in the United Kingdom, about the role of the leader or concertmaster, and how her relationship in rehearsal with the conductor is so crucial to great music making. For the cost of a pint of beer once a month, you can subscribe to this new series of interviews, plus hear extra clips of music and exclusive behind-the-scenes news about the podcast. To subscribe, go to patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash a mic on the podium. Today, I conduct a conversation with an Israeli conductor who started conducting very young and has gone on to be chief conductor with both the Iceland Symphony Orchestra and BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra. He's also the driving force behind a music festival that started in Iceland but has now expanded across the globe. It's a real pleasure to chat with Ilan Volkov. Ilan, lovely to chat to you today. Yeah, lovely to chat with you, Mike. I think it's fair to say that you grew up surrounded by music. Your father was a concert pianist. What do you remember at the very, very beginning of life about music? Um, well, my, my father had a piano at home, obviously. Uh, he, he had a piano trio, so he would rehearse the piano trio there at home sometimes. He was also teaching, but usually not at home. So yeah, music was all around. I mean, especially I remember in the beginning uh, are the journeys that were connected to music making. So my father was teaching in Dartington, for example. So I, I used to go with him from a young age, like almost four or five times, I think. Um, so that was kind of one or two weeks there in, in, in the countryside. So that, that's kind of, that's a big memory from that. That's connected to music, I guess. And also going to, a lot of his concerts uh, later on, turning pages for him and stuff like that. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, and what's the piano your instrument? Yeah, I started with violin actually. Um, and then at some point the uh, piano joined into that. So I was studying both. Um, and then kind of, yeah, basically um, at some point both dropped uh, because I started studying conducting and I decided not to continue actually studying uh, piano or violin. So that was later on at the age of 17. So you're one of the rare people who went to uh, conservatoire, you went to the Rubin Academy in Jerusalem to study conducting from the very beginning. Most of the people I've talked to have sort of done it later on or have gone into it yeah. through a choral route, but you, you did conducting straight away from university yeah i mean i kind of started the first time at the age of 13 and then there were quite a lot of things the age of 14 15 16 uh, i mean i didn't have an orchestra or anything but i was kind of doing summer courses and then in rubin academy i was actually in school still but uh, for a couple of years i used to go there and study conducting uh, with other students that were actually much older than me mm. So yeah, so even when I got into the academy, I got in there as an undergrad, but, but the course was for postgrad, so that was a kind of weird one. And who was teaching you? Uh, Colin Metters, um, so that was three years uh, from 93 to 96. And yeah, I mean, good time. There were a lot of really good students around, and London was a fantastic place uh, um, 
I don't know it so much now as a scene, but back then, because I was living there, it was a really great place for music, but not only classical music, it was kind of an explosion of, of concert going for me because I came from Israel where there were things, but I didn't really know what was going on there and I was too young. But when I moved to London and started living alone, um, that was kind of a big, big uh, deal that, that year. And what was Colin's teaching style like? You know, I've, I've taught... I talked recently to people who were taught in Soviet Russia, uh, in America. Uh, what was his approach to teaching? Well, I mean, I think he, he I mean, this was mainly with pianos, right? Um, so one or two pianists in the room and the whole class uh, kind of doing stuff. And then there were a lot of sessions with videos as well. I think I learned a lot from this way of working. I think I'm using a lot of that stuff now, uh, 20, 25 years after. I mean, the weakness uh, structurally studying in the academy at that time was that we conducted orchestras very rarely. Uh, yeah. And uh, I think that was a weak point because we just didn't do it enough. Some of the students were conducting already orchestras on the side. Uh. Um, they were already doing quite a lot. Uh, but I was young, I didn't have any connections in, in the UK, and I couldn't really conduct on the side, really. Um, so that was a weakness. Uh, but I think the strength was actually understanding. I mean, I think for me, he, he allows you, calling method is kind of a way to analyze your bodily gestures and to, to understand how conducting works. Mm. I think he, he wasn't really talking a lot about music making. Uh, or interpretation, which was at the, at the beginning was hard for me. But in hindsight, I am grateful for the awareness that he taught me, the, the bodily awareness, the physical awareness, and the, and the way that he allowed, he, I mean, he really developed um, really understanding consciousness of really being conscious of what you're doing and how the orchestra is reacting and how you can change what you're doing, etc. Mm. And so these tools that he gave us uh, as students, I think, uh, were very valuable. And uh, I'm using them every day. It sounds like quite a holistic approach in the fact that he, he wasn't imposing his interpretations or musical ideas on you, but he, he, was, trying to get, he was trying to help you find a way with your body and your gestures to, to realise your musical ideas and, and, uh, and interpretations. Yeah, def yeah. De definitely, definitely. Mm. I mean, when, when, there was a kind of interesting time because George Hurst, uh, who was his teacher, used to come a few times a year. Yeah. Uh, so his method was quite different from Collins, even though that maybe technically um, a lot of what they're talking about is similar, but yeah. George was much more kind of an old school guy with, with like, really strong ideas about interpretation and quite blunt about how he was working. So it was kind of like a very different type of person. I actually learned a lot from George, right. uh, but I'm, I, did, I never went to his own uh, classes. Uh, and so I, I was kind of separate from that camp yeah. to some yeah. degree, which was good, I think. Um, he was a fantastic person. And, um, and then also we had the privilege of working with Ilya Musin. Oh, wow. So, uh, Ilya came, and that was something that, that Colin made happen. He brought Ilya to, to the school, to the academy, and he gave the master classes there. And of course, we learned a lot. I mean, yeah. I learned tons. And then we had the privilege of working with Boulez at some point, which was a kind of off thing that was 
later on LSO did a masterclass with Bules and most of the students that got into that masterclass were Collins students. I mean, it was actually open to all the students from all the academies in London, but uh, the chosen one were mainly academy students. And, and that was also superb. I mean, I developed some relationship with Boulez, which meant that I could go to see him rehearsing later on. Mm. I mean, I think the main thing, I was very lucky because of my father. I had help very early on on how to kind of get into master classes and studying. So before the academy already had, um, I was in Stuttgart. So I studied with Reeling and Gardiner. And after the meeting with Gardiner, I used to go to, to assist him or listen to his rehearsals for, for a couple of years as well, when I was like 15, 16. And then there was also a time when I went to listen to rehearsals by Hanon Kur uh, at the age of 17. So a lot of this was going on. Yeah. Um, and I, th I think, uh, I mean, I learned so much from seeing other conductors conduct. And to some degree, I, I kind of separate three ways of studying conducting for me. One was alone with the yeah. scores and listening to recordings and listening to rehearsals and concerts. And the other one was studying with Colin and before him, Mandy Rodan in Israel, who was a fantastic conductor and teacher. Um, and then the third thing is actually going and seeing lots of conductors rehearse uh, in London. And then also when I was assistant in Boston, the main thing we were doing as assistant there was actually watching other conductors rehearse. Uh, I mean, that the interesting thing, going back to something you said, um, and it mainly being a piano-based course, is that you know there's very, very few places on the planet where you can study as a conductor and there be an orchestra there just for you. Um, you know, yeah. it's the expense of it. Um, and in re really, I can only think of places like St. Petersburg and, and the Sibelius Academy in Helsinki, you know, that they've got an orchestra there for you to sort of get your hands dirty conducting right. um and i think right. what you're right is that you know a lot of people will form their own ensembles or conduct amateur orchestras in the city that they're studying in um and it's difficult for young conductors to to get their hands dirty with actual people playing instruments in an orchestra uh, but it, yeah. it sounds like you had the experience of, of basically immersing yourself in every other way possible to learn yeah i mean I was starting quite young and, and I understood that I need to learn a lot of repertoire, listen to a lot of repertoire. I mean, yeah. that was nothing to do with conducting. That came from loving the music yeah. and uh, immersing myself in orchestral music and, and operas, etc. So, I mean, I think also I was lucky because at the age of 17, it benefited me more studying, you know, and, and analyzing videos and working with pianos and being in a class with Colin than actually being confronted with orchestra every week and kind of being <laughs> yeah. intimidated that way. Because I mean, you know, as you know, even master classes with people like Barnborn and people like that, you don't really learn anything. I mean, from this pressure situation, you learn maybe about how to deal with pressure, yeah, yeah. But, you're, but how much can you really study this way? Um, I mean, that's hard to tell. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah right, it's, it is difficult. Um, you know, looking at uh, the age you were when you were doing certain things, you know, I, I've written down here in my little notebook, you were 19 when you became Young Conductor in Association with Northern Symphonia, 21 when you were uh, LPO Youth Orchestra Principal Conduction, 23 when you went off to become assistant at Boston Symphony Orchestra yeah. with Sergio Zawa. I mean, 
perfect age to just be an absorbent sponge. Uh, and it's, it's, it sounds like you were gen you gently sort of tiptoed your way into conducting orchestras, you know, young conductor from the association, then a principal of a youth orchestra and then assistant with Boston. Do you know, you see what I mean? It, you were talking yeah. about being thrust in front of people at 17. That, that didn't happen, but you gently tiptoed your way in uh, yeah. over the next six years or so. I mean, this was also, I was lucky. I mean, the minute when I finished studying in the academy, uh, I, I started, I got the job in Northern Sinfonia which meant I had a youth orchestra there to run. And sometimes I would conduct the main orchestra and sometimes I would do new music with the main orchestra. Yeah. So, so then when I got that position, I also luckily uh, met Rachel Bostock, who is now Rachel Van Walsom. And sh she has been my agent pretty much most of these years yeah. since, uh, yeah, since basically 96. Uh, there were a few years when there was a gap there, but basically we've been together for a long time. And, and what you're talking about, this gentle starting, this is very much to do with how she approached it, I think. Mm. Uh, because when she took me on, uh, her and you, Kevin Walsam, they were very clear that they're not going to push hard quickly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, I, and for me, that was the right thing. I think for some people, you know, Lahav Shani, you know, when he got you know, after, you know, winning the competition, he was ready for anything else. Yes. And so, so the progress for him was, was very quick and right. Mm. But for me, I was in a different place and I needed time. And, and their attitude was, was actually, yeah, we are, we are building something here slowly. So, I mean, I'm lucky to, to have that support and that kind of attitude from the very beginning. Isn't, isn't that so important that you find somebody who will you find somebody who put their arm around your shoulder and guide you and and maybe put the handbrake on and you know because I suppose oh, yeah. when you're when you're young or you know I, I started to conducting when I was 35 34 35 you know I wanted them I wanted to go fast so, you know I thought well I'm, I'm going to catch up and make up for lost time here but you do need somebody who's just going to say no hang on hang on you know you need to learn you need to you need to get the right experiences and, and that sounds like you were lucky and you found the right person straight away yeah, totally, totally. And uh, I'm very grateful to, to have been continuing. I mean, also, I'm lucky in the fact that I haven't changed agents in the yeah. last 25 years every other day. So that's also <laughs> been, I mean, yeah. it's not really, I mean, that's been really good for me. Uh, I mean, I think I would say, I would say just to finish this, that even though they were there, I still made mistakes, you know, yeah. in the first 10, 15 years of my career. And I'm happy I did those because otherwise I wouldn't be who I am now. I mean, I, I had to fail several times and, and agree to do gigs that maybe I shouldn't have or maybe repertoire that I shouldn't have. Um, and the, the, the agent can help there, uh, but to some degree you have to also kind of fall mm. in order to know how to progress and how to achieve um, the right, I mean, to do good concerts or to have the good good enough relationship with orchestras and things so i mean i mean part of the problem with that with conducting is that when you fail uh things are known i mean people <laughs> know that you failed yeah. um and so that kind of it leaves a sort of um print um which sometimes takes a while for it to to you know to recover let's say but uh, you're right i think it's important that you fail and i think it's important that you have 
a bad first date or, um, you know, because I'm just about to go on now to, you know, you, you, I'm sure eventually what was happening was that guest engagements were coming in. And, yeah. and we can link those two subjects together in the fact that at some point in your conducting career, career you're going to have a bad first date. And I think it's important that you learn from it. But you know, most of yours will have been good first dates because of you know how your career has panned out. But what was that like at the beginning? Again, did you tiptoe into it and sort of gently start doing more and more guesting? Um, that's an interesting one. I mean, I think the nice thing with what how I started was I had these three jobs one after the other. Oh. Uh, Northern Sinfonia, then uh, at the same time for a couple of years or one or two years I did also LPO, LPO uh, London Philharmonic Youth Orchestra, which was a new project. And then I got the job in Boston. So I did both Boston and LPYO. Then I then LPYO finished and I continued with Boston. And so that was like five years of mm. that. Uh, and that was super valuable. And then, I mean, I only started really doing guest conducting with other orchestras uh, when I was in Boston. So 98 and 99. And um, yeah, and then things moved quite quickly because at the end of 98, I already did my first engagement with um, BBC Scottish, yeah. which, which led a few years after to, to us working um, fully together, only five years after from 2003. Yeah. So um, yeah, but that first two, three years when I was living in Boston uh, was very intense, uh, like, like three, four months of touring around the year and then the rest of the year studying scores and, and being uh, with Boston Symphony. I mean, that experience was amazing as well. Yeah. Uh, um, studying tons of scores, being ready to conduct at any moment, which we did sometimes, me and Federico Cortezo, who was my, my, my fellow, we were two people, yeah. my fellow conductor who were doing the, was doing the job. Uh, it was the last few years of Ozawa there, so it was quite a lot of celebrations and big projects, commissions. Uh, of course, Tanglewood with its kind of huge heritage and, and amazing new music festival. So there was a lot there. You just mentioned the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra. I remember there being quite a buzz um, because you started as chief conductor there in 2003, and I was still very much only playing in 2003, playing in the CBSO. And there was quite a buzz, buzz created that, oh, they've appointed this young conductor. And um, and you would have come not long afterwards. I remember playing for you the first time in Birmingham, you would have done Marla Six. How did that feel to be asked? Um, I mean, were you aware that, 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 you know, I think I read somewhere that you were the youngest chief conductor the BBC had appointed or something. Was, were you aware of that? And did it phase you? Um, I mean, already by then you'd been conducting in quite a few years, but, you know, how was that the, the, with the starting suddenly in Glasgow? Yeah. I mean, I guess the orchestra was from the very beginning very positive. Yeah. And yeah. I, f I felt they were on board. I mean, as you know, BBC orchestras are not really choosing their conductors. No. Uh, it's management, uh, but the manager there was Hugh McDonald, who was a, a very strong supporter of mine. And yeah. then the pro the main producer was Simon Lord, who was another very strong supporter. And a, and the two of them are great human beings. So the, that made a big difference for how I felt, I think. And yeah. of course, the orchestra itself was very positive. Um, and we had our ups and downs during 
you know, the last 17 years, but, but it's been a fantastic journey. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think, uh, I mean, the proof of that is the fact that I'm still going there every year for many weeks and yeah. uh, I'm still doing crazy projects, which sometimes not all of them like, but they, <laughs> but they like me. So, so, yeah. Yeah. so they like having me. And I think when I say this liking and, and this, I mean, I think the humanity of all this thing is, is really crucial. It yes. was for me anyway. Um, and I think it's, it affects much more than if the concert was good or if the, if the interpretation was strong or not. You know, I mean, in the end of the day, uh, the interactions, the human interactions are much more critical. Uh, um, that's I mean, true. I, I, I think I changed a lot since then, you know, mm. um, and maybe the m biggest change is my attitude towards other people and myself with music, like hard. I think I was much harder on myself and other musicians than I am right now. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if that's good or not, actually. But well, that's I, just, I think, a fact. I think people um, mellow as they, as they grow older. And, you know, sometimes something as momentous as becoming a father changes your outlook. Or yeah. it could be anything. It could be, you know, getting yeah. married or whatever it could be. Yeah. Um, I think people do mellow. And, you know, so I look back at some of the things I did when I was playing and think my god what why did you behave like that you stupid mm -hmm. idiot you know um uh, maybe that's because i'm now uh, as they say you know um poacher turned gamekeeper i've become a conductor and realized my god i wish i hadn't given those conductors <laughs> quite such a hard time but yeah you do, you do mellow um you yeah. do change yeah. i wanted to pick up on something you said about um working at bbc and crazy projects i mean you know, if you don't like doing crazy projects, don't play in a BBC orchestra because they do some mad stuff. Right. Um, what right. were the what were the sort of things you enjoyed doing with them? Because I mean, they will play literally anything, from the avant-garde, totally you know, the the ink is still wet on the page, to music that's been forgotten for um, 60, yeah. 70 years. You know, what what were the benefits of doing those sort of things? I think uh, I mean what I enjoy. Uh, enjoyed doing in the seven years that I was there as principal conductor was the breadth of the repertoire. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm somebody who likes that. I mean, I like to study new scores. I study quite fast, luckily. Um, and I love opening up a score that's never been played, even if it's new or if it's old. Uh, I, I love doing programming. I mean, it's yeah. something that at the beginning... Of course, I did a lot with Simon and, and, and Hugh, and I think I developed gradually my own way. I'm still working with Andrew Trinick, uh, who is the producer now in Glasgow, closely on the programs, but I would say that, that I'm, I'm more independent than I was 17 years ago uh, when I started the job there. And yeah, I mean, it, it was a kind of, from the very beginning, the interest in new music, the interest in unknown 19th, 18th century repertoire and the mainstream repertoire. And, and also it was a nice time for the orchestra because it was just before they moved in to the hall. Oh, the, to the city, city hall, yeah. Yeah, so city hall was renovated. They were still in uh, Queen Margaret Drive, which was kind of like a, a small studio. So, and then, so we did suddenly, so, so then we actually played in the main hall, in, in, uh, in the RSNO hall, which is a much bigger hall. And, uh, and then we could do big, you know, Mahler and Shostakovich and things that the orchestra actually didn't do so much. Mm. So those first few years was quite a lot of new repertoire for me, but also quite a lot of new repertoire for the orchestra. And I think that was a fun part of it. It was kind of like a, um, there was a kind of a lot of, you know, 
new things that we were doing together. Yeah. Um, and of course, I got in. I mean, I was all, always interested in new music. I composed myself when I was 13, 14, and I used to study composition. And, and it was always important for me to do new music. And so um, we did tons of that. But I guess we actually did more of that since 2013 when I started doing Tectonics Festival there every year because that's actually nine, ten new pieces every year just in that weekend. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to go on uh, to talk about between 2011 and 2014, you were um, boss in Iceland with the Iceland Symphony Orchestra, and it was there that you first created the Tectonics Festival. Is that right? And yeah. if you could explain... Because it's not just classical music, is it? It, it has it yeah. crosses all sorts of genres of, of music and experience. Explain how that how that first popped into your head as an idea and and how it runs. Well, um, I was kind of always interested in um, improvised music, in free jazz, in in jazz, uh, in electronic music, and that interest kind of started before I moved to London. Uh, before starting to, to study conducting it, but then it kind of really exploded when I was in London. So I used to go to lots of classical gigs, but I used to also go to a lot of small free improv gigs, uh, parties, you know, just like tons of stuff from yeah. all, all, all genres. And so that kind of my schooling in music uh, in, in many genres of, of music happened then. Uh, I would say, and um, yeah, and so I had this big interest then while moving to Israel uh, 13 years ago when my daughter, my first daughter was born, uh, we started working on a project in Israel of, you know, basically I did a kind of version, earlier version of Tectonics, which was called Order Disrupted, or, well, Disrupted Order or something like that, Hafarot Seder, which basically started as a kind of uh, thing with mixing genres. So there would be, okay, Gubaiduli a piece or new classical music piece, but there would be also improvised music or electronic music or sound art or uh, sound installation. You know, so the whole evening would be a mix of genres. Yeah. Uh, and I started curating those basically quite early uh, before Tectonics happened, a few years before. And then me and a couple of people here opened a small venue for music. And there again, I, I was kind of, my hobby was actually curating the stuff and actually bringing people from abroad to Israel to perform. Uh, and I actually produced shows, basically, you know, picking up the guy from the airport <laughs> and the band uh, and, and uh, doing the flyers, uh, carrying the equipment. You know, it was basically producing. That's, that's, quite, that's quite a hobby, to use the word hobby, <laughs> to, to yeah, decide yeah. to be, a, you know, to do everything. I mean, that's so immersive yeah. and... And yeah. bloody hard work, frankly. Um, but, oh, yeah, yeah, it was. But I it suppose was. if you want something done, do it well yourself. Um, is that yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I didn't really know anybody who did that stuff in Israel back then. Mm. Um, and, I, and, the, and the music that I was interested in bringing to Israel, nobody was really doing that at that moment, or very few people. Um, so I decided, I had the venue anyway, we had some money. Uh, and the other two people that were running the club with me were really supportive of that. So we said, okay, you just do this project, you know. And so I did, you know, we brought over like 60, 70 people in you know, the first two years of, of the venue. Wow. And uh, so basically I did that on the side while, you know, traveling all around the world, conducting, trying to raise a family in Israel too at the same time. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, that's that's had its toll. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. On site. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's been, it was really a great thing. I mean, it happened kind of by chance, and then I was kind of hooked on it. And then at some point I decided, well, why don't I just mix the new music, classical new music that I'm conducting anyway all around the world? But, it's, but you know, that was also ensemble modern concerts and Sinfonietta or Klang Forum, whatever it was. And mixing that stuff with the curation and producing that I was doing anyway in Israel. Mm. Uh, and then when the job came from, from Iceland, I said to them, well, I'm happy to do this job, but I also need to do this festival, which is, which is that. Yeah. And, uh, and they said, fine. They didn't really understand what they're getting into, <laughs> but they did, they, they did say fine. Um, yeah, and then they supported the project and we, we did the project for five times. Also, after I left the orchestra, we still did it. Yeah. A couple of more times, um, and, and now you take it to, as you said to Scotland, but other places in the world as well. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, it's a kind of it's still like a hobby yeah. in a sense. That I mean, it's it's not technically a hobby. I'm getting paid for it, and I'm, yeah. but it's it's kind of like a pet project which I really adore, which has become quite substantial. Uh, we've done 26 of those events all around the world. Um, and uh, I've collaborated with lots of co-curators for this project. And I've met hundreds of musicians, which I, many of them I knew before only by records or by reading yeah. about their work before. So it was for me a kind of really amazing thing. And uh, so I still do that a few weeks a year. It's still not the main thing I'm doing, obviously, yeah. because I'm still traveling as a conductor and working as a freelance conductor, etc. And and working as a principal guest in Glasgow, etc. But yeah, this project has kind of become a, a something that I do every year and it is continuous and we have a whole scene of people that are connected with this project. I think I'd love to ask you a question about programming. The reason being is that when I first started changing from a violinist to a conductor, it was one of the areas of conducting I absolutely loved. Um, the idea of putting together programs. I still now, you know, if I go out for a walk or if I'm playing cricket and I'm stood down on the boundary and I think of a program, I'll, I'll mentally jot it down and then actually write it in a book. Mm. I, I do some teaching at the Birmingham Conservatoire and part of the things that I do with the conductors there on the master's course um, less to do with te the technical side is I'll sit them down and, and give them challenges with programs, give them two pieces and say, give me, give, give me a third, or yeah. uh, give them three pieces and say, I need a fourth piece, but the orchestration is this because you cannot afford to, to hire anybody extra. Um, mm -hmm. What is it about programming? Because you said earlier on how much you loved it, and I know I do. What is it about programming that you love? And do you have sort of program strands that you like to use uh, for instance, you know, I quite like programming pieces that were written in the same year, preferably that don't sound anything like each other, but that's the thing I can hang, the, uh, hang it on. What, what, talk to us about programming. Wow, it's kind of an endless subject, uh, of course, as, yeah. you know, <laughs> as you know. I mean, it's great to hear that you're teaching that because I think it's actually something that one needs to start quite quite young and it's something that one needs to practice. Yes. Um, you know, I think actually, by the way, all musicians should do that because if you look at programming of recitals and string quartets, concerts, I do feel many times that 
a bit more thought would help. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I feel that, that we, all, we all should be practicing that as musicians. I mean, it's actually throwing music together. Sometimes that's completely not connected. So yeah. sometimes the connection is actually the contrasts or the mood or, or how, which, which chord it ends on, whatever, it, millions of things, you know. Mm. I, I don't kind of follow uh, one or two strands, but I do follow my gut feeling about what I'm interested in at the moment. But what I've, I, ha, I am learning more is how to accommodate that with what the orchestra needs. Yes. You know, if you're a guest conductor, for example, you might be wanting to do millions of things, but that's not what the orchestra needs at that moment. Mm. Um, and, and so that's not so easy. Many times you start to, to talk with administrators on, on the program, but actually you need to actually have a phone call. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, with some people, I do it over the phone. Like, for example, with Birmingham, actually. We, we sometimes, I mean, that with Stephen, it's, it's very easy to do programs for me. And with some people, yeah. it's harder. I agree with Stephen. You know, he's. Um, I, I can think of at least on at least two occasions we've started one, one one program and then two or three phone conversations or an hour's meeting sitting over a coffee together. We've ended up with a completely different program. But because sure. I think he's the same as you, you and I, uh, he loves programming as well. He loves putting a, a program together, not only for you and I, but also a strand that goes across the season or a strand that goes across the three seasons. Um, yeah. You know that it can be. I mean, the difficult thing is, is that, you know, people must think, oh, it's just like being a, a kid in a sweet shop. But it can't, you know, some of those sweets are off limits. You can't do them because the music director is doing the Marla that year. You So you can't yeah. do Marla. Yeah, also some things don't fit at all. No. So, you know, <laughs> some things, uh, but sometimes I like it, you know, sometimes I see a program and think, oh, this is really weird. But I'm kind of like interested if it can work or not, because in the end of the day, even if you know the pieces very well, uh, sometimes you don't know if it works or not as a program. You mm. know, it's you know the the easy metaphor here is like you know making a meal. You know, you don't you don't always know how each course will will fit the other. So, I mean, I think that's very valid with music. I mean, I do find that uh, sometimes it's kind of nice to insist with orchestras. You know, like I was, I remember doing a project in Japan, and they wanted like two concerts, very mainstream, of course. And then I mentioned the Takemitsu, mm. as I knew that this would be the only Japanese composer that they would probably agree to do. And then they were quite negative about it. And then, of course, we did it. Yeah. They, of course, knew the music quite well, and the audience loved it. And in hindsight, it was a great thing to do. But I kind of had to insist. And I mean, now I'm kind of working in a different way because at the, at the first 10 years, maybe 10, 15 years of work, let's say 10, I needed to always try to i wanted to push new music more to the front mm. and and that was sometimes difficult because the orchestras either didn't have enough time or are not interested in the music or they were worried about audience yes now i kind of do it less because i'm doing so much new music anyway and i have tectonics and i have many orchestras calling me for new music anyway and um, so i kind of like i'm pushing in other directions which is possibly you know like working with more rare repertoire. Yeah. And I do feel that the scene has kind of changed, like there is more openness for this because people understand that they can't just sell, you know, they can't only just play Beethoven five and seven. They also need to play <laughs> four and eight sometimes. Yes, exactly. You know, yeah. and, and the, the business has become so problematic that four, five, ten years ago, 
people started to think, ah, this Beethoven symphony, I, I can't, there's going to be less people coming because it's this number, you know. When you start to go into these, you know, thinking modes, you're in a, in a difficult spot. So I try to convince, you know, the freelance orchestras that I work with, you know, how we're going to approach the program, how we, where we're going to push uh, to a territory maybe that's unknown. Sometimes people also accept, I mean, now I'm doing a program in Israel, hopefully next week, it might be in two weeks, we don't know yet, yeah. uh, which is only string orchestra, call, you know, pieces. And I've, I sent them like six options with alternatives and stuff. So there were maybe like, you know, quite a lot of pieces in there. Yeah. Uh, but one of the pieces was uh, uh, Jon Leff's piece, uh, Icelandic composer who is not that known, has never been played in Israel. And suddenly they were, oh yeah, we must have this piece. And yeah. I'm like, okay, that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> but it was worth a shot, you know, it was yeah, worth the meeting, yeah. you know. Yeah, if you have a piece that you really want to champion, it's sometimes worth really fighting for it. You know, going back to Stephen and the CBSO, I remember every year asking to conduct the Corn Gold Symphony in F sharp. And every year him going, no, 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 no. And then I went, I went in for a meeting one January, uh, sat down and he said, right, so what are we going to put with the Corn Girl Symphony? I, 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 I could have run around the, the room. I was so happy that eventually, having, you know, chips and chips away. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. I think it's important that you, you know, you try, try hard to get what you want in there. And, and because you're conducting better because it's music you love and it's music that you're championing. Yeah. You said earlier on that you study scores fast and that you love new scores. I'm the same. I love opening a new score and seeing what's on page one and how it's the journey we're going to take. I ask every conductor this, um, how do you study those scores? Do you have a set routine? And when you study scores and learn them, are you a writer of instructions into your scores or do you like to keep them clean and no markings at all? Well, uh, to answer the second question, I mean, I, I mark scores less and less now. Okay. I mean, I think I, I did mark them quite a lot uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Yeah. Um, I think I'm doing it much less now. Uh, I'm trying to kind of just like memorize the score. Uh, of course, sometimes I, I mark stuff. It's not that I'm not marking, but I'm not using colors. I never use colors. Yeah, um, yeah I try to kind of... So that I try to avoid, uh, I, I like it pretty clean. Um, I also sometimes not use the same score for the same piece. Like, you know, sometimes I on purpose asking orchestra to send me a score, even though I have a score, yeah. because I don't want to see the markings from last time, uh, which is a funny one. No, um, other people do the same. Um, other, I mean, that's the interesting thing about asking everybody is that, it's probably 50-50 between who writes in and who doesn't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. And um, about learning scores, I guess I try to do two things. Uh, one is get a sense of the overall picture quite quickly. Mm -hmm. Like don't start get bogged down by the details on page one before you really know the whole journey of the piece. So it's more about structure of the piece, the different parts in it. Uh, learning the orchestration, you know, because orchestration is a big deal of what we do, like yeah. actually understanding how the composer works. And it's mainly kind of understanding how the composer is working. Usually I try to look at other pieces by the same composer. So even if it's a new piece, I would have already looked at other pieces possibly of them or other chamber pieces even. Mm. Um, so I kind of already know the language. Um, I mean, of course, a lot of the new music pieces that I do 
I actually commission them or ask for them to happen. So, so I'm already aware of the composer's language quite a lot before. But it's not always the case. Obviously, if I'm doing Clang Forum or Ensemble Modern, many times it's kind of like, okay, this is the, this is the composer. I never heard of this person. Um, and yeah, and then I try to, to learn the details as much as I can. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, with a new piece, if you get it two weeks before the premiere, you're, <laughs> yeah. not going, you're, you're just not going to learn everything. It's not possible. Um, and many times, many, many, many times, this is what happens. You know, yeah. one month, two months, but actually a lot of times, two weeks. Um, I had an amazing experience recently in, um, in November, I think it was, with Clang Forum. They had the canceled, I mean, they needed a conductor. They called me. They had to send me the scores. The scores didn't arrive, and I don't learn score, scores from PDF. I just can't. No, I'm sorry. I don't, I, don't, I don't even try. I mean, I look at it. You know, I can look at it, but I can't learn it. Um, and then the scores arrived, and then I had to learn it super quick with one rehearsal for two huge pieces, uh, the Abeli Variations by, uh, orchestrated by Hans Zender, which is complicated as hell. And a huge piece by Upper Gis that was written for from Clang Forum that they knew very well, but I had never looked at it. So it was like two pieces of 50 minutes, more or less. And yeah, that was a great experience. I mean, we finished the rehearsal and everybody was like super happy. And I was like, oh yeah. I mean, there was, it's not like just like doing another gig where orchestra can play without you anyway. This was like, like you know, it would fall apart after yeah. one bar if I didn't know the pieces. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's important, isn't it, that you learn that you you can learn fast, and you have a process for doing it. I mean, I have a system. You know, if I've got dates in the diary, I'll I'll because I mark my scores up. Uh, um, but I I learn them six to nine months in advance, just in case I get the phone call like you did that says, mm -hmm. uh, "Can you come in two days?" And there's a piece you probably don't know. It gives mm -hmm. me two days. I'm not I'm not you know worried about scores I've got on the desk. I can just throw them on the floor and say, "Right, I've got two days. I've got to learn this." And I think yeah, you've got exactly. to be able to have some sort of system um, yeah. where, you know, the phone can ring and you can say, yeah, I'll learn that symphony in three days or I'll learn that brand new piece of music. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's also the advantage of like doing it for 25 years. I have studied scores for that amount of time, yeah. maybe slightly more. And that mean that means that, you know, if it's a piece I haven't done, but about the composer that I have done a lot, I mean, the learning curve is not so big. Yeah, that's um, true. You know, and many times it's also like, you know, learning a Beethoven symphony, for example. It's not like we are going to learn it and then stop. I mean, yeah. we still have every time to refresh our memory. We still have every time to look at it. I, I look, I try to look at stuff like in a completely new way yeah. and not on purpose. I just, it happens. And um, so I am really happy when a piece that I really know well comes back because it means that I can go, you know, stick myself in there again and, and kind of feel like, like uh, you know, really refresh this experience. I mean, with Beethoven symphonies, for example, it's a fantastic thing because, you know, the more you learn about it, you understand that there are so, so many options you can take in every, in every bar. And I, I think they're the pieces, I'm coming to the conclusion, much like you do, that it's almost time now for me to, to retire my scores and buy some fresh ones and start again. And, um, yeah, otherwise, yeah, it's very easy for you uh, to go into a pro, the, you know, an, another time doing Beethoven 7 with all yeah. of the baggage of the previous ones. Yeah, it's, it, I think it's close for my scores to be retired. Last thing about this issue is that I also love, just with interpretation in generally, is to feel the ability to improvise. Yeah. 
So of course you learn stuff, but when you get to the place with an orchestra that you feel comfortable with and they know you and you know them, if you're able to then improvise many aspects of the interpretation during the rehearsals, but also during the concert, then you're in a space that's really interesting, I think. Mm. So it's great to have an interpretation that's very kind of, you know, that you can defend, you know, uh, if you need to, but <laughs> actually having the freedom to develop things is, is also super interesting. And for me, that's where the music making with an orchestra can be super uh, complex and super surprising and, and uh, very deep. And uh, may I add, mo more exciting to the player and all of my favorite musicians I like playing for had this element of mm. spontaneity. Um, I mean, of course, as you say, there has, to be, there has to be a connection between you and the orchestra and the orchestra and you for that to happen. But when it does, my God, is it exciting. Uh, oh, yeah. And it's something yeah. I crave when I conduct now, that you can have that ability to just turn on a sixpence and suddenly do something different. Um, it's also to do with the fact that as, as the human beings, when we are confronted with sound on stage, it's, it's when a surprise happens, when something opens, a door opens to something new, that's where we start to really feel or listen. Yeah. Um, so even if it's something that we've done before, but it's something, so this physical reality of opening sound and going deep into a sound that you don't really, you've never experienced in that way, uh, that could be also like one second and then it's gone, right? You yeah, know, yeah, it, yeah. It's yeah. not always the whole concept like this, yeah. but, uh, but that's what we are, you know, looking for, I think. Ilan, it is time for the 10 questions. And I will start with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Well, I love lots of sounds, of course, and noises. I kind of one of those people that go outside and on a good day, in a good mood, listens to stuff that happens around me and feel it like music, mm. John Cage style. Um, <laughs> uh, I think the sound of leaves rustling in a tree um, it's something that I've kind of experienced many times, but recently during the coronavirus lockdown, I used to sometimes walk outside quite early in the morning. And yeah, there was this particular tree not so far from where I was staying. Uh, yeah, it was just magic. Um, so that's one of the sounds, definitely leaves rustling in a tree. Mm. Um, one of the things that I hate is probably sound of garbage truck at 4 a.m. Uh, because some cities decide that cleaning the street is important during the night. So yeah, that one is kind of, is one of my ones that I don't like. <laughs> and where you are, are they, uh, is the garbage truck the sort that goes beep, beep, beep? Or, uh, it's or, less of that, but uh, it's more just super noisy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's just incredibly noisy and it's just like the, the, the flat I'm staying with in with my girlfriend uh, is is just like it's like everything that's on the street you can hear really well so we hear also conversations of people and whatever you know and people honking or whatever and it's usually fine because it's not a crowded street but that thing at four in the morning is kind of yeah not so nice if you had 24 hours free what would you spend it doing probably relaxing on a beach with my kids 
I think, I mean, I, I do it sometimes for an hour or two or three, but yeah, it would be nice to do it the whole day. It, it makes a difference when you know you're not looking at your watch thinking I've got to be back somewhere to get somewhere to do something. Yeah, yeah. I did it last time with them uh, for a whole day when we traveled to Africa in the summer. So I took my two daughters to Africa, just me and them. And uh, we stayed in Zanzibar for a while. And yeah, one of those days were, was like that. Who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear? Well, I mean, it's a hard one, mm -hmm. as you know. I'm going to go for Bruno Maderna. Um, it's not a conductor I experienced. Uh, he died before I was born. Mm -hmm. uh, composer, conductant, conductor. I mean, for me, one of those figures that if he would have lived longer, he died quite young, if he would have lived another 30 years, uh, the world of music would be a different world. And his interpretations of, of, I have lots of his CDs, it's all live recordings. He did very few session recordings. He had a few, but very, very few. Um, so one of those is Schubert Great Symphony, for example, where he does a second movement quite fast mm -hmm. uh, in the early 70s or late 60s. And I would say that's probably one of the only recordings at that time, which is kind of like a period recording from now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and, and I think that's, uh, he's a hero of mine. Of course, he did tons of new music. There's a video of him conducting Varese's uh, Desert uh, in a Luc Ferrari film. And you can see him conducting there, and it's just astonishing. I mean, the power and the knowledge of the score and the, and the exciting kind of energy that he had. It's very different type of conducting from Boulez, mm -hmm. even though they were both, like, strong colleagues and they were, like, very close to some degree um, but yeah totally different kind of energy well in all of the episodes I've recorded uh, the first time we've had that answer and I'll be open and honest enough to say I've never seen him conduct and I'm gonna look him up on YouTube and try and find fantastic it. there is very yeah. few this is the problem yeah. Um, yeah. so because I'm basically I mean I've been collecting his his recordings for for years um, and it's more about the actual recordings. Of course, yeah. some of them are crappy because it's sometimes really not such good orchestras. Um, so there's actually very few videos of him conducting. Uh, and I'm hoping that there will be more, you know, that, that, you know, YouTube now is kind of a place where suddenly, you know, you get five new, new videos yeah. of, of um, so hopefully some more will pop up. And who would be your favorite current conductor? Well, I kind of wanted to cheat. And, and talk about somebody who died quite recently, uh, which you know, of course, very well, Oli Nassan. Yes. Um, but I'm not going to go there. Um, I guess, um, you know, it's actually, I'm going to go there, even though uh, I don't like everything he does. Mm -hmm. But uh, Johnny Elliott Gardiner uh, is really an amazing musician. And uh, I was lucky enough to know him when I was like 13, 14, 15. Uh, yeah, 14, 15, and then basically kept in touch for a few years, and I haven't been in touch with him for, for years. But, uh, I mean, for me, uh, he has so many essential recordings. It's, he's not a conductor that I, I would want to study conducting from. Mm. Uh, he's more of a musician conductor, you know, if, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Uh, he's a superb, uh, superb musician. And, for example... You know, some recordings he has, which people don't all know, like, for example, Granger CD or, you know, Brahms vocal pieces with orchestra. You know, there's some 
recordings which are will never be surpassed you know mm. you could do another record which might be as good but you're not going to get a better recording of these pieces what is the hardest work you have ever conducted i think i'll choose two mm. um uh, messian's chronochromy oh, which yes. is a very unusual piece with lots of tempos very unusual scoring and heavy heavy piece. I mean, it's not a piece you're going to conduct a lot. I've only done it one or, once or twice. But I remember that as being... I mean, I, the, the occasion was conducting it with Czech Phil in Rodulfinium. So I guess that added to the stress level <laughs> and the fact that also they never played it. I guess if I would do it now, it would be easier. Um, it was years ago. And the other piece would be Mozart Mass in C. Oh. Um, I did that recently, but I, I'm, I don't think I'm that happy with the performance, although I didn't hear it again after doing the concert uh, at the proms. Maybe it's to do with the fact that I used to kind of listen to this piece a lot. Mm. It was the old, old uh, Gardiner recording and other recordings uh, many years ago. And it's kind of something that was hard the first time to overcome the fact that, oh, you suddenly have to do it. You know, you have to actually decide things. And the, and the music is, is complicated. Um, to some degree, much more than a lot of new music or 19th century music that we know. Mm. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I want to have another go at that. <laughs> is Chromochromy the piece where, where the middle movement is bird songs for solo strings? I think it is. Yeah. I think um, it is. I think it is, but, but it also happens in another piece that, you know. I can't remember whether it is or it isn't, but it, it, it made me sh made me shiver down my spine if it is that piece, because um, we did it in Birmingham with Simon Rattle, and the seating list came out, and you know, I, I was at the back of the seconds anyway, so it didn't matter, but but it, it was very clear that I had to sit on the outside of the desk, which meant that when we got to that movement, I had a solo to play, which, yeah, that's fine. Um, and then we, we were reading the movement for the first time. Uh, Simon had sent the rest of the orchestra away and just left with us solo strings. And uh, this movement started very quietly and there were lots of high twittering birds going on. And I'm sitting at <laughs> the back thinking, oh, I'm counting and looking at my part thinking, well, th this seems wrong. Um, and then eventually I came in and thought, right, I'm not going to go for these dynamics. My dynamics was sort of forte crescendo to three Fs. And everybody was twittering away down the front, and I'm thinking, my God. I, so I sort of half-heartedly came in. Simon stopped and said, Mike, the dynamics are correct in your music. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was as if he'd put me on that particular, I don't know, Ethiopian calling bird or whatever it was that I was having to right, play. Right. But yeah, I just remember sitting there in fear thinking, oh my God, have I got to play that loudly? It's a nightmare for the players, but actually I love those kind of democratic pieces where yeah. suddenly, you know, back of the desks of basses or whatever has a huge solo. And it happens a lot uh, in music, uh, post-war yes. music. And uh, yeah, I mean, that piece, I did also Eclair, which is a huge, a longer piece for orchestra, also super difficult. Mm. Uh, but that was a kind of easier experience, I remember, just because it was with BBC SSO. Um, and it's some... Thing. I mean, I remember mainly the crazy thing was like the, the fact that there's like 12 clarinets and the fact that the oboes are on the other side of the stage and all sorts <laughs> of weird stuff like that. But um, yeah, I mean, studying Messian is fun. And also the, the, the fact is that in a Messian concert, if you do, I mean, if somebody makes a mistake and comes in a bar early or late, that's it. I mean, they're not, if they're playing the next 25 
bars now, they're not going to be able to correct it, <laughs> uh, which, hap which, which happened in one of the sessions I did once. Uh, so, yeah, it's just, you know, things, weird things can happen. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Uh, it's close to the phone, but it's far enough to say. Uh, mm -hmm. the headfo it headphones, really. Oh, um, yes. I mean, I've been traveling with headphones for a long time. I mean, I'm actually cutting it down now. I used to be able to read while travel and while conducting, you know, I do it less now. I think I find it harder. But listening to music is definitely something that I try to keep up uh, during flights, during travel, during hotels, you know, time. Yeah, I need, I need that. And noise cancelling, I'm assuming. Uh, no, no? Pretty okay. cheap, no, pretty cheap ones that just like work. I, I, I don't go for the expensive stuff because every time I buy that expensive stuff, it just it, it's, it's it gets ruined very quickly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's the same with the hi-fi I have. It's pretty cheap. <laughs> Good. Um, next, what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Well, it'll have to be probably an answer that you've got already a few times, but for me, it's non-travel. I mean, yeah. I, it would be really nice to travel less, which actually will happen in the next four or five years because yes. that's where we are at, it seems. But uh, yeah, I find traveling more difficult than I used to find it. One of the reasons is actually because we are in a kind of sort of prison when we travel. Yeah. Uh, airports have become kind of small prisons. Um, hotels more and more and also cities have become too similar to each other you know I, I find it uh, I, I sound like, I, like I'm quite old but I do find <laughs> that that's, that's a problem um, I used to be able to kind of when I was traveling kind of travel a lot in the cities that I was in and I still really do it but much less mm. um, yeah so it's the travel issue is, is hard but you know that's what it is I haven't thought about it like that, but you're right that many cities, are, whether they're trying to be similar or trying to be this great utopian place. It's called capitalism and it's called, it's called the, I mean, it's the architecture that's been enforced uh, basically because of econo economics. Yes. And uh, this architecture is, is, a lot of it is anti-human. Um, so it's developing areas in our cities that don't breathe. That's why, you know, when I lived in Rome uh, and I tried to go to Italy every year or every other year, it's because the cities breathe there. I mean, they have a life. They still are able to, to be human. Um, and modern cities more and more are giving in to these commercial aspects. Uh, and yeah, it's basically destroying cities all around the world. But don't get me started on that. <laughs> <laughs> What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Well, I guess this one I would answer every day a bit different. Today I thought about it and I decided on forest guard. I don't <laughs> know if that's the right, uh, you know, like somebody yeah. who, who, you know, is in the forest and make sure that the forest doesn't get burned and make sure that, you know, the animals are good. It's, it's the one thing that I, I'm sure I will not, never do, mm. uh, but it would be a great thing. I mean, I kind of like, wanting for the second half of my life now to be more outside cities gradually. Um, and so maybe that's what kind of brought this answer on. But yeah, forest guard. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? 
I, I'm thinking to go quite simple, a beer yeah. and the prosciutto with maybe a little bit of good bread, Italian bread. Keep it simple. That sounds great. Uh, as has been our chat, really fascinating, really enjoyed chatting to you, Ilan, and I hope to see you very soon after all of this is over. Yes, Mike, I, mi I miss uh, CBSO so much and miss hopefully seeing you very soon and chat about, about other things other than conducting. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat to a young American conductor who shot to fame after winning the 2015 Besançon International Conducting Competition. After stints as assistant in LA and Manchester with the Halle Orchestra, he starts as chief conductor with the Nordwestdeutsche Philharmonie in 2021. Until then, bye bye. <laughs>